Once again, good morning. We are certainly glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting this morning, we are extremely glad that you are here. Thank you for coming, being a part of us this morning, and uh, uh, certainly we'd love to have you back. Um, I am looking at the clock back there, and it does serve some purpose. Let me know I need to hit the pavement running again. Uh, if you have an outline, I uh, hope uh, if you feel free uh, to, to fill it out as you go through. That helps you kind of stay along with things. And uh, I'll try to cue you in at the right time before I actually launch in. Let me say that uh, uh, we have about over 40 of our students who will, by this time next week, uh, be involved in mission efforts, uh, a large group going to work inner city in New York City, and uh, another large group going to Honduras. And uh, uh, I hope uh, that you'll be thinking about them and be praying for them. Uh, and by the way, we're going to have a special time of prayer for all of them at our Devo tonight. I hope you'll come and be part of that. I want to tell a story about a, uh, uh, that a man from Huntsville, Alabama, wrote in about an experience he had. As you know, uh, Huntsville has a large uh, concentration of very technical people, computer specialists, engineers, and he's one of them. And you'll see. He writes this. I had uh, just been visiting a friend of mine in a hospital and stopped by a burger drive through for lunch to eat on the way back to work. I ordered a number one combo, burger, fries, Coke, for $4.29. The guy said over the speaker, that'll be $4.83, please uh, drive forward. I thought to myself, $4.83 for a $4.29 meal, why, that's 54 cents tax. That can't be right. So my mind raced. I knew that, or at least I thought, that uh, tax was $0.08 cents on the dollar, so $4, that would be $0.32, cents, plus the tax on $0.29, cents, that would be, at max, $0.35 cents tax. Now, I heard that about window workers overcharging drive through customers and skimming it off and putting it in their own pocket. In fact, someone did that to me at a Hardee's a couple years ago. Now, I didn't have my calculator watch. I lost it a while back. So I got out a pen and paper and began to do the long division. I had two cars in front of me and had time to do it. Let's see, 483 over 429, why, that's over 12% tax. When I got to the window, I handed the guy my $5 and said, what's the sales tax in Huntsville? And the guy said, I don't know. I said, well, I'm 43 for 429 meal, that's 12% tax, that can't be right. Can I talk to the manager, please? So he handed me what change I, he thought I was supposed to get and called the manager. So the manager came over. I asked, what's the sales tax in Huntsville? And the manager knew and said it's 8%. because goes, just what I thought. He said, I just paid 43 for a 429 meal. That's over 12% tax. She got a funny look on her face and said, well, maybe the, the computer just made a mistake and overcharged you, or maybe it charged you for a biggie meal. Oh, but I knew better. A biggie mill upgrade with 35 cents, and that would be 464 plus tax. That'd put over $5. <laughs> she admitted it was supposed to be 463, so she opened up her drawer and gave me the extra change. Ha, I thought. Six years of engineering school has so heightened my mental mathematical adeptness that I could do percentages in my head and my superior intellect has foiled a feeble attempt by a drive through worker to overcharge me. And so I took the 20 cents that she handed me, proud of my staggering genius, and smugly drove off without my food. 
Sometimes you can't win to lose. (laughs) Nonetheless, I think all of us could see the value in having a sharpness of mind. But we Christians also see the additional value of having a renewed mind. That is, the God-given capacity to think spiritually. And according to God, this is essential if we're going to grow spiritually and have this bond with him. In fact, you'll find this kind of reflected. If you look at the prayers in both the Old and New Testament, you find it there. You take uh, Paul, for example, who has a lot of his recorded prayers in his letters. For example, when he prayed for the Colossians, notice what he said. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through, notice, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You'll notice that when Paul prays, he doesn't pray that the Christians be free from persecution. He doesn't pray that they have a a lot of material prosperity. He does not pray for that. But rather, what he focuses on is that we have renewed minds, that we have... Wisdom. Have you ever noticed that? All his prayers reflect that. And as we'll see, this is exactly what James tells us that we need, especially when we're going through tough times. And so as we pursue this unquenchable joy that we talked about, or I tried to talk about last time, James tells us that there is a wisdom we need that only God can give. In other words... We're not talking here about what we tend to circulate around calling, you know, conventional common sense. And so we need to turn to God and ask God. Now pick up with me in verse 5. And most of these readings come out of the New Living Testament. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Now, James is telling us here that trials make us face our constant need for divine wisdom. And when trials come, instead of getting tied up analyzing God, you know, why God is this happening to me? We're supposed to, James says, move on to the faith question, what what God are you trying to do in my character so that I could be more like Jesus? You see, if we're going to keep joy from being extinguished during tough times, then it's crucial that we begin to see our trials from God's point of view. Because when I'm in tough times, I know how it works. There is no shortage of advice of what people think around me of what I need to learn. But after all is said and done, the only interpretation that matters is God's. Of course, it would be helpful, I guess, to pause for just a second and understand what wisdom is. When the Bible talks about wisdom, it's not talking about the accumulation of knowledge or sharpness of mind. Although that's a good thing. Because it's possible to have a lot of biblical knowledge without really possessing spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is the increased capacity to view your circumstances from a divine perspective so that you can determine 
what the most godly course of action is, given what you're facing. That's what wisdom is. And so you see that wisdom moves beyond the theoretical to the practical application of spiritual truth. Wisdom, on the top of your outline, enables me to live right in the situation that I find myself up against. I want you to notice, how do you measure wisdom? James is going to keep talking about this, so let me just skip you ahead to James chapter 3 to see a preview. Do you want to be counted wise? Listen now. Do you want to build a reputation of wisdom? You want to look like a person who's really close to God? Here's what you do. Live well. Live wisely. Live humbly. It is the way you live, not the way you talk, that matters. So wisdom is more about how you live than really what you know. Now, here's where we run into some really good news that you and I are so desperate to tap into. In fact, I think I know why Avery is a cheerful giver and where it comes from. The psalmist said something, and he was right in Psalm 62. My soul rests in God alone. But not only is God the only source of these insights, but God is, he is absolutely enthusiastic about sharing his resources with us. He is spontaneously generous and impartial about all of this, regardless of what your track record has been. And so he's certainly not going to react to your your request by saying, is that you coming to me again for, for something else? How long are you going to wear me out? In fact, God comes with this in some senses with absolutely no strings attached here. That is that God is not resentful that you are dependent on him. God is uh, uh, not going to complain about your incompetence, and he is not going to be half-hearted when it comes time to respond to you. God is thrilled about this. And so James tells us that if we will sincerely ask God for wisdom, God is never reluctant. Now think about that. That's an extremely bold promise. Even when I look at God and I think about prayer, you realize, don't you, that that's not something that you could say about every prayer request. For example, we're not promised that every time we pray for healing, that we're always going to get a yes from God. In fact, Thinking about this, I, with most of my prayers, I don't know how God's going to respond. I don't know if it's going to be yes or no or you know, not yet. But here, James guarantees me on your outline that if we will pray for wisdom, God will never say no. Never. He'll never say, tough luck, too busy, come back next week and I'll think about it. 
Never. Now, it's here that James offers a proviso. You think, ah, here's the string attached. Just hang on and listen. As James turns from talking about the divine side of prayer to talking about the human side of prayer. Pick up in verse 6. But when you ask, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they are unstable in everything they do. Now, your translation might use phrases like not doubting and uh, uh, double-minded and unstable. What James is pointing out to us is how our kind of our evil impulses cause us to kind of waffle back and forth in our relationship with God. One moment God's in, one moment God's out, one moment God is convenient, one moment he's not convenient. But you see, God isn't hesitant to give. It's just that so often we're hesitant to follow through with God. And so while we're talking about this, about what we ask of God, James wants us just to pause for a few minutes and to take note about what God is asking from us. First of all, in your outlines, God is asking us to make our request with expectancy. Now, when James says we are not to doubt, we must be able to distinguish between honest intellectual doubts in the context of struggle and what we would call duplicity. Duplicity is more associated with disloyalty and, and deceit, all right? And I've got to try to somehow get us to see, because this is, this is a hang-up. It's a hang-up for me, because I've got a lot of questions for God. James is not talking here about honest intellectual doubts. In fact, we find that kind of God questioning threaded throughout the scriptures, especially when you read through the Psalms. For example, if you were to go to Psalm 6, and I want you to do this afterwards, you would find David wondering out loud if God had rejected him because he was going through such difficult times. In fact, David even attempts to force God into action by offering an obvious bribe. And yet in the midst of his doubt and weaknesses, David is reminded about all that God has done for him in the past. And it's with that openness of heart toward God that David receives the hope necessary to keep on with God. You see? It's what one person called earthly honesty. My point is sincere questions you can be framed in the context of of hope and trust and, 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 and truthfulness. Earthly honesty, the thing that allows me to pierce through, the person says, the false spirituality and all of that God talk and pretense. So we can actually grow in our relationship with God. So yes, come as you are. No strings attached. Just come honest. And then like David, our honest doubts will drive us. They will lead us to remember what God has done for us in the past and how, therefore, he is trustworthy to face the future. So he's not talking here about honest intellectual doubts and the things that that generates. It's important. 
Now, if prayer is important to you, listen up. What James is talking about is that God cannot honor a request when we possess this attitude that communicates that God is unable or he's unwilling to meet our needs. There's a difference, you see. On your outlines, God's promises are not to be treated like lottery tickets, where his answers are subject to the laws of probability and chance. Does that help? God will do what he says because he is able. He is dependable. Why? Because he is good. Because God cares. Because God is powerful. In fact, in the Greek language, it could actually be translated in your text, let us ask our giving God. That's how we need to see God. You see, sometimes I think our prayers just fail to realize just what a generous nature God has. Now, I know what it's like to pray and wonder if God is going to answer. I do not have perfect faith. None of us do. We're all like that father in Mark chapter 9. Remember this guy after the mountain of transfiguration? He just comes off the mountain, sees his disciples talking to a father and a son. The son's possessed by a demon. A demon. The father's been asking disciples to help him. They can't do it. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus says, what's going on? He says, well, I came to these guys to try to get my, this demon cast out of my son. He couldn't do it. If you could do something for me, could you? And Jesus said, if. All things are possible to him who believes. And the guy said this. He says, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. There's, you know, born out of that desperation, there's that earthly honesty. So just like that father, what we've got to do is to set our hearts in the direction of belief. We have to want to believe. Now, we're not talking here about perfection. We're talking about the direction of your heart. And that leads to hope, you see. So what God is looking for from us is a heart that's set in the direction of trusting faith. But second of all, God is asking us to make our requests with integrity. In other words, not only does God expect us to set our hearts in the direction of belief, but he also wants to set our everyday lives in the direction of belief. When James talks about being double-minded, he's talking about a person who prays one way, lives another. He's talking about a person who's constantly changing his allegiances to different sides of this battle. He's talking about a person who is always leaving his options open just in case God proves to be undependable. Does that help? It's like the early church father, Augustine, who in a candid moment confessed to praying this way when he said, Lord, grant me purity, but not yet. And he was living with someone at the time. Again, James isn't talking about perfection, but direction. On your outlines, our lives must reflect a sincere 
commitment to follow through with what we're asking of God. Is it really hard for us to understand that God would want to give to those who really want what he has to give? Now, to illustrate this, <laughs> illustrate this, James now turns to a common social problem, trial, suffering of poverty and wealth. Pick up with me in verse 9. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like the flower in the field. The hot sun rises, the grass withers, the little flowers droops and falls, and its beauty fades away in the same way. The rich will fade away with all of their achievements. And James tells us here, when wisdom is in place in your life, it keeps prosperity on your outlines in perspective. Big deal nowadays, isn't it? And this is one area, I tell you, we do not need the world's wisdom. We need God's wisdom here. Because trials have absolutely no respect for status and wealth. Suffering does not show favoritism in this room, does it? And you don't need anyone to tell you how trials have a way of erasing all of those superficial distinctions and barriers that are set between people. I tell you what, when you're sitting there waiting on heart surgery or you're sitting in the cancer ward, it doesn't matter whether the guy in the bed next to you and the people tending to you make more money than you and less money than you. doesn't matter. When you're in the foxhole of life, it doesn't matter if that person who's protecting you or on, helping you on your back, he's, he has a different skin color than you do. It doesn't matter. Trials are great equalizers. Suffering is the great leveler of life, isn't it? And you see, being endowed with God's wisdom, the believer is able to face the trial with gratitude for the riches he cannot lose. Now, of course, right now in our country, this is, not, this is a very real and sensitive issue. 24-7 is on the news. You get sick of it. But I want you to know it's also an opportunity to witness to our faith. And so in this very certain and frightening environment, there can come a people who say, you know, I've got God's perspective on all of this. And although I and others are feeling kind of fragile right now, I'm thankful that I possess riches in Jesus that I cannot lose no matter what the stock market does. The world needs to hear this from us. You see, the poor believers can rejoice that God has enabled them to see their spiritual wealth, and the rich believers can rejoice because God has enabled them to see their spiritual poverty. And both of us are taught where our real security lies in God alone. There is no rest elsewhere. It's just a raging sea. And sometimes it takes trials to help us see life through God's perspective. Those of you who are sports fans will know the name John Elway. He played football for the Denver Broncos until he was 38 
16-year career, Hall of Fame career, went out on top having won two consecutive Super Bowls. Unbelievable. But I'll tell you that life after the NFL didn't go all that good. When he got off the radar is what we don't know. I'll tell you how it started. It started with a series of business failures for him. One that was in partnership with Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan that just collapsed. His father, shortly after that, who he considered to be his best friend, died of a heart attack in 2001. He retired in 1999, 1998. So. Then his twin sister was diagnosed with cancer, and after two years battling with that, she died in 2002. And right on the heels of that, shortly after, brought on by the stress of football and family, his wife, Janet, of 18 years, walked out taking all four children. Rick Riley, famed columnist for Sports Illustrated, you know this guy? He interviewed Elway in the aftermath of all of this. And in his column, The Life of Riley, it's always on the last page. He's retired now. He wrote this. But nobody does comebacks like John Elway. He started to change. He'd go to Janet's rented house and pull weeds in her garden when she wasn't home. He went to the mall with her, which he had never done before. He sent her roses every week. He opened the car doors. He started hanging out with his kids. And then John Elway said to Riley this, them leaving kind of woke me up. It was like a two-by-four to the heart. Sometimes God has to use really hard things to open us up, to see the illusion the illusions of life for what they are, and so that we can find the joy in the things that really matter. Now, there's one more thing that James tells us in verse 12. When people are tested and still continue strong, they should be happy after they have proved their faith God will reward them with life forever. God promised this to all who love him. Second there on your outlines, when wisdom is in place, it will keep eternity in sight. I'm not going to tell you that keeping eternity in sight makes life fixed. But it definitely alters how I think. James is determined that we remember where our unquenchable joy comes from. And James, by the way, learned this from his own elder brother, Jesus, who at a time when the disciples were boasting and disoriented about things, about what made life good, he says, no, you've got it wrong. He said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, confidence in the next world it's what's going to bring joy to us in this world. Ironic that we in church buildings forget that when times are tough. Please understand, 
James is not in any way minimizing what you're going through. He is not glossing over the pain. Whether you are facing cancer, whether you are facing troubled marriages, family traumas, job insecurity, fighting addictions, people, there is nothing flippant, casual about struggles. Only to those who aren't going through them at the time, I guess it is. But James wants you to know this, that there is nothing that you are dealing with that's worth complaining about in heaven. Nothing. Like Paul tells the church in Rome, I consider that our present sufferings, and they were going through it, people, when he wrote this, are not worth comparing the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And so, you see, wisdom has a way of keeping the future connected to the present. The bridge, you see, is made of hope and joy. The story is told about a Dr. Brackett who served in a small rural community as a family physician. And he committed himself early in his career that he would never turn away a poor person. And most of the people in that community were very poor. And so he had to make great sacrifices. He often had trouble making even ends meet financially. He lived in a two-room place above a grocery store where he kept his office. And there at the bottom of the steps leading up to his place was simply a little sign that said, Doc Brackett, office upstairs. But he devoted himself to that rural community until the very day that he died. And when they came to his funeral, there were more people at that place than that region had ever seen at a funeral. And the people began to think to themselves, what can we do to honor this guy? Well, I'll tell you what one couple did. They went back to his place, they found that sign, and they set it up above his gravestone. Doc Brackett, office upstairs. Are you bringing a renewed mind to your troubled times? One last thought. And it's inspired by James' closing thought there in verse 12 when he says, God promised this to all those who love him. And here's the thought on the bottom of your outlines. Our giving God can be trusted when love is tested. And by the way, I'm talking about yours, your love. All through this section, James is talking about how we think and act going through difficult times. And then he closes by telling us that God's promises are absolutely reliable. He delivers. And he's excited about it. You know what this whole section that we've started back last time I preached uh, up there in verse 2 following? All the way to this point. You know what it's really all about? It's about it's how we love God. How we love God during hard times. That's what it's about. 
And there's one great command, and life is simply a series of tests to reveal how well we're keeping it. Are you going to love God? And so James tells us that God is good, God is generous, God cares, and God can be trusted in troubled times. And I invite you to cling to that because everybody in this room, sooner or later, is going to need it. My soul rests in God alone. You looking for God today? I think you can find him in this place. Sometimes, though ironically, even in church buildings, he's hard to find. But you can find him here. Set your heart, set your life, everyday life, in the direction of God. And you'll find him. And if we in any way can help you with that, whether it's coming forward publicly or if you just want to go and talk privately with one of our shepherds as they make their way back to the foyer, tap them on the shoulder, ask them to pray. That's why they're there. That's why they're there. Then do it. Please feel free as we stand and as we sing.